Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. morning, uh, we are, if you've been with us through the fall, we've been preaching through the book of Acts. Uh, we took uh, a little bit of a focus over the last two weeks to focus on the government of the church, the role of uh, deacon and elder. And now we're resuming uh, our series in Acts. And uh, the passage today, is, it's, a, it's a wonderful passage, but it does present a unique challenge for a preacher uh, because it's one story that's uh, one of these first deacons, a man named Stephen, uh, is arrested Uh, And then eventually, I'll give the ending away, he's going to be stoned. He's the first martyr in the church. And in between, he preaches a sermon that goes for about 75 verses. Um, And it's really, it's one text, it's long, uh, but it doesn't make sense to break it up. So we are going to attempt to preach through 75 or so verses, but we're not going to read all 75 verses. So when you stand, know that you will be getting to sit uh, sometime before too terribly long. So we're going to break it up a little bit um, and abbreviate the reading. Uh, but if you are willing and able, would you please stand for a reading of God's Word? The first section we're going to read is Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him. And they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him, said that this, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, and then Stephen goes on a long sermon where he basically recounts the entire history of the Old Testament people of God, from Abraham through Joseph into Moses. And now we'll resume our reading in uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 51, as Stephen concludes his sermon. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not, not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, if I'm honest, uh, I have always been and remain a little bit uncomfortable with how central death is to the Christian faith. I think oftentimes for modern Western ears where we think that uh, the point of life is to preserve life, to expand life, to get healthier and healthier and to live longer and longer, that uh, when you read passages in the New Testament that talk so frankly and honestly about death, not just our physical death, but the reality that the sacrifice of life lies at the center of faith, it's uncomfortable. When you hear Jesus and the Gospels invite disciples saying, take up your cross and follow me, right? Take up an instrument of death and follow me. When you hear him say things like everyone who wants to keep his life will lose it, but he who is willing to lay down his life and lose his life will find it. It's uncomfortable. When we hear Paul say, as he does, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering, somehow becoming like him in his death, I go, ugh. I mean, I want to know Jesus, but the fellowship of his suffering and sharing in his death, having my life start to look like the life of someone whose life ended in sacrifice, it's uncomfortable. And then to see Stephen here, the first, but by no means the last, of uh, these foundational saints of the early church laying down his life in witness to the gospel to tell the good news. It's uncomfortable. You know, uh, we said Stephen is the first martyr. In fact, the word martyr, someone who dies for their faith, comes from the Greek word witness, right? They are the same word. As though they're trying to communicate to us that, listen, to witness, to tell the story of Jesus, is in some way to, to be a martyr. It's to lay down your life. It points to the fact that, you know, most of us, especially living uh, in a nation like ours, is not likely to have to actually die for our faith. But that there is something central to our faith about coming to a place where you hold your life loosely. That we witness to our neighbors not by clinging to life, clinging to power, clinging to wealth, but by letting it go, by laying down our lives in service and in love and in humility. That the path of being a witness is to share and to give, even to the point of our own lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, whose life together we've been reading in our growth groups this year, uh, says elsewhere, speaking of the call to discipleship, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Come and lay down your life to follow me. You know, uh, in our world, this sounds, uh, our world can only hear this call to die as a kind of extremism or fanaticism, right? I mean, the, the consensus in our world is that you can have a faith. In fact, maybe a faith is a good thing to have, 
right? Some way to meet with God, some way to have transcendence in your life, but your faith shouldn't matter all that much to you, right? Your faith should be a part of your life. It's an addition to your life. If it helps to inspire you, that's great. But when, uh, when our world hears this talk of laying down your life, of having something in your life that matters so much that all of your possessions, all of your relationships, everything else in your life is expendable by comparison. Even your life itself isn't more valuable than that central faith. That seems crazy. It seems extreme or fanatical. And yet, studies uh, most recently done on what makes for a happy and fulfilled human life place this at the center of it, right? That happiness doesn't consist in having, uh, it doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. That sounds like somebody, that's, that's Jesus, right? That, it, that, that wealth does not correlate to happiness. That pleasure doesn't correlate to happiness. But the, the things is, you, is they do these global studies on happiness. Arthur Smith uh, has written about this at some length in both the New York Times and the Atlantic, that the top indicators of happiness in a person's life are vocation, not vacation, vocation, right? Feeling like your life, your work matters to some kind of larger purpose. The sense that when you wake up on Monday morning, that your life fits as a part of some larger story and purpose. That's the number one indicator of happiness. It doesn't have to be a high paying job. It doesn't have to be the CEO's job. But it has to be a job and a calling that fills your life with some sense of meaning and connection. And secondly, the second leading happiness indicator worldwide is a worldview or a theology that helps you make sense out of suffering and death. Right? That, that having some way to deal with the inevitable suffering and death that comes into life. That if you don't have something to hang those things on, some way to make sense of suffering and death, that you can't ultimately have sustainable happiness. The other two are connection and community and friendship and a rooted family. And Acts has something to say about all of that. But I want to focus in Stephen's story on those first two because I think Stephen shows us what it looks like to have a sense of calling, to have a sense that your life matters in a larger purpose, and to have some way of approaching death with hope and with courage. You might even say that you haven't really found something worth living for until you've found something worth dying for, right? Until there's something that so fills your vision, that so fills your life that you say, uh, I, I could let go of everything as long as I have that. That being able to face death is key to having something that allows you to face life. And so we look at Stephen's story. You know, his story begins about a three-chapter hinge point in the book of Acts, where we go from the apostles in Jerusalem to this mission outward from Jerusalem, as Luke said at the beginning, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? That it's a, a story that has to go to the ends of the earth. And we see between Stephen, Philip, and then eventually the call of the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 6 through 9, this movement of the gospel going out from just Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And Stephen shows us the kind of faith that can give meaning to our lives and to our deaths. And so first thing we want to see is that Stephen had found a story worth living and dying for. 
that he had found a story that helped him to make sense of his life and a story, a way of understanding his world that gave him this freedom and this power to face life and even to face death. Stephen found himself accused falsely in verse 13 of chapter 6. These religious leaders of Israel, religious leaders of the synagogue, bring an, an accusation against him in verse 12. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Basically, if this, if this seems to rhyme with other places in the New Testament you've read, this is, a, this is a close parallel to what happened in Jesus's life, right? Where false witnesses finding themselves, these people in religious power, finding their lives and their view of the world and even their power threatened by the way that Jesus was telling the story of the world and his place in it as its savior and king, brought false allegations of blasphemy, right? That he uh, had claimed too much for himself, claiming to be the son of God, and that he had denigrated the traditions and scriptures of Israel, that he had uh, denigrated Moses and the worship in the temple. And so when they bring the accusation against Stephen, it's very particular what it is. It's against this place and the law. This place was the temple, and the law was the word of God as they inherited it through Moses. You know, every, uh, every worldview, every way of looking at the world and at God has to answer these two questions, right? How do I connect with God? How do I meet God? How do I have communion with whatever transcendence you believe to be there? And for Israel, the answer was through the temple. That the temple was that place where heaven and earth met, where the priest went on their behalf with the sacrifices into the presence of God and could usher them in with him. And so to, to, to critique the place where they met God, to, to critique the place where they had access to God was to throw off kind of a fundamental building block of their view of the world. And then the law was the way that God spoke to his people, the way God revealed himself through Moses and through the written word. And so they accused Stephen of having taken these two things, the way they met God and the way they heard from God, the way they ordered their lives around God. And they said that he had thrown them out. And so that's what he does in the sermon that he preaches, the one that we largely uh, didn't read, is he shows that actually far from that, he's not uh, saying that God is discarding the law in the temple, the old, all the stories of the Old Testament, but that he's fulfilled them in Jesus, that in Jesus, he's actually the one that all of those stories have been pushing towards. So through the call of Abraham, through uh, Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt with his, uh, by his brothers, through Moses leading the people out into the Exodus and through the building of the temple, he shows that all of those things have been one story, the story of God's pursuit of his people, the story of God's grace and his redemption of his people. And then at the end, he ties it together by saying, look, all of the people, every step along the way, resisted God's redemption, right? He says that the, the people under Moses questioned Moses' leadership. In fact, they wanted to go back to Egypt when he led them out. And just like they resisted God's grace, now you're resisting God's grace. Just as they stood against this wave of God's redemption in his story, now you are standing against this story. 
of what God is doing in the world and for you, and they just can't make sense of it, right? They can't, they, they've gotten to a place where they've fallen so in love with the story that has been up to this point that they can't receive what's new. They can't be surprised by God's grace in their present. They can't see that God has done a new thing in Jesus, bringing it all to completion. We use stories to make sense of our lives. They frame our lives. They give them meaning. And when those stories that give meaning to our lives are threatened, when they're changed, when they're shaken, we don't uh, alter them easily, right? And just as much as the ancient people of Israel lived their lives by stories, as they told stories that made sense of their world, so do we, right? So do you and I and our neighbors, We tell stories about what we believe is happening in the world and so that we can fit our lives as one small piece of a larger story, right? It's one of the reasons why we talk past one another, one of many reasons why we talk past one another uh, politically so very, uh, so very often, right? That there's a progressive story about the world, that it's getting better and better and and that getting it better is within our grasp. If we just get a little more change, And then there's a conservative story. The world is actually not getting better and better, but it might be getting worse and worse. And we need to conserve. We need to protect what's worth conserving and protecting about our past. And so often these two people uh, end up talking past one another because they're using different stories to frame their lives. There's a traditionalist story that says our lives have meaning and purpose by keeping to things the way they've always been. That's somewhat of what Stephen runs into here. Right, that the traditions of the people of Israel make them unable to hear his message. There's the modern individualist story, right? That the story of your life is to become most fully and authentically yourself. That your life has meaning and purpose to the extent that you find a way to express yourself freely and fully. Freeing yourself from any confines or expectations or laws or morality. Right, And these stories that we use to frame our world make other stories very, very difficult to hear, even impossible for us to hear. The fact that Stephen had a story that he thought was not just true for him, right? Notice what he does. He doesn't say, well, look, Moses and the temple, that's all still good for you, but I'm going to do it this way. Jesus is my savior. No, he says, look, there's a new story. And there's a story that I believe is true and that frames all of our lives. A story that's given Stephen meaning and hope and purpose and life with God that he believes can do the same for his hearers. The story that Stephen believed put him out of step with his contemporaries just as much as our story. The story of what God has done to reconcile the world to himself and Jesus oftentimes puts us out of step with our neighbors and our contemporaries. And so Stephen shows them how Jesus fulfills this story that they tell themselves, that, that God had been telling through the pages of the Old Testament. Look at, uh, look at Acts 7. This is part of what we uh, didn't read at first. I'm going to read now. This is uh, 7, 35 through 38. He says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who approached him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. 
This is the Moses whom the Israelites said, whom, I'm sorry, whom said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and to the fathers. He received living oracles to be given to us. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, look, Moses himself, Moses, the great prophet of Israel, Moses told you that there's going to be another prophet like me, but better than me. Moses, the great prophet, said you're waiting for another prophet who's going to continue to speak God's voice to you. He goes on to talk about the building of the temple and how even, as Jesus said, even the temple, the great place where Israel met with God, was all leading to something else when he said, you know, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. What Stephen's saying is that, look, the, the, the place that your story led you to where you have a prophet who brings God's word to you, Moses, and you have priests who represent you to God, that's what the prophets and the priests did in Israel. The prophets represented God to the people, they spoke to him, and the priests represented the people to God. Right? The, the, the prophets uh, told the people what God was like and what he wanted, and then the priests represented those same people before God. And what Stephen is saying is, look, there's a new prophet and priest. That there's now another one who represents God to you more fully than any of the old prophets could ever do. Right? There's, there's one who shows you what God is like, who God is like, who speaks God's word. In fact, the word became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus. So there's a new one to look to to find out what God is like. And there's a new priest, a new one who makes one sacrifice to represent us to God, to bring us into the presence of God. And that if your story doesn't lead you to that one, to the one who brings God to you and brings you to God, then it's ultimately going to end up as an empty and futile story. So the question that Stephen asks his people and, and that we would ask is, what story are you living in? What, what story helps you to make sense of the world that you live in? In the scriptures, the gospel brings us a story that says, look, Jesus reveals God. He's our prophet. What I find is that so often without that, you know, contemporary people, we often think, you know what? I don't need somebody to tell me what God's like. I don't need somebody to reveal God to me. I can, I can pursue God on my own. I can come to my own ideas and conclusions about who God is. But when you're suffering and when you're struggling and when you're wrestling with doubt, do you have, have you felt how lonely it feels to be left with figuring out who God is on your own? Wondering whether or not he cares about you. Wondering whether or not he sees you and knows you. And the gospel says, look, if you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. God looks like Jesus Christ. He's just as full of love and mercy and compassion as Jesus is. Just as full of power, just as concerned with the broken. That Jesus reveals God to us. So you don't have to guess. Right in the middle of the night when you're, when you're up and you're wondering if God sees you and knows you. If you're wondering whether he has any grace for you or love for you. You don't have to, to hurl kind of hopes at heaven and hope. God shows you in Jesus who he is and what, he like, what, what he's like and what he thinks about you. But more than that, God, Jesus not only brings God to us, he lifts us to God. He shows us that, that, look, if your story is about you earning your way to God, climbing a ladder 
of wisdom or righteousness or spirituality or goodness or any of that, you're ultimately going to come up empty that Jesus comes and lifts us to the Father, brings us into the presence of God, forgiven so that we can have peace with God. And so Stephen tells them this story of God's relentless grace and mercy coming towards them and for them and Jesus, and it doesn't go so well. You might think, wow, who could not love that story? Who couldn't love a story of a God's relentless pursuit of his people, him revealing himself and loving them and gathering them? Who would say no to that story? And yet what Stephen says is that these people do, and they do it exactly in the same way that their fathers did and their mothers did and their grandparents did and their great-grandparents did and their great-great-grandparents did. The next thing that we're going to see uh, in this story is that Stephen not only has a story worth living and dying for, but he also has an insight into what real death really is, right? That there is a death, there's a principle of death in the world that's more than simply physical death, right? That, that, That there is a death worse than death, and the scriptures call that sin, right? That there's a spiritual death. There's a death that happens in our lives and we turn our back and close ourselves off to God and his grace. And the way Stephen narrates it as these people reject him, as he says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. At this point, he's kind of playing Moses' greatest hits. This is uh, Moses' complaint against the people in the wilderness over and over again. God, why'd you give me these people? They're a stiff-necked people. They might be circumcised in their skin, but their hearts are uncircumcised. They are deaf and blind to who you really are. They are a stiff-necked people. Anytime we come to uh, the stiff-necked metaphor in Scripture, uh, my best way of understanding this, because, you know, it's an agricultural metaphor. It's the story that would have made immediate sense to the Israelites who knew what it was to try to lead a donkey or an ox out into their field to do work. And the, and, and the the livestock bends its neck and resists going and digs in its paws or hooves or whatever. It won't go. Such a city guy. Um, but in my life, I've got a little 12-pound dachshund named Baxter. Um, and now physically, I can pick up and take Baxter wherever I want him to go. He's a 12-pound dachshund. But if I'm trying to lead him on a walk when he doesn't want to go on a walk, Or if I'm trying to lead him one way around the block and he wants to go the other way around the block, he will jack his neck up and dig in his little paws. And to move him, I mean, I could drag him, but it would be just walking around the block like dragging an anchor behind me. If he doesn't want to go, he's not going to go. And this is the metaphor that God uses over and over again, basically for what it's like being our God. I try to lead you. I try to show you, I try to guide you. And instead of following easily in a trusting posture, you dig in and you bow up and you bend back and you become a stiff-necked people. He says you might be circumcised in your skin, you might have all of the outward signs of the covenant. You might have all of the outward markings of faith, but your heart is unchanged. It's hard, it's resistant 
This is a picture of, of truly what sin is. It's a picture of the posture of Adam and Eve's heart in the garden. When they took the one command that God had given them, right, the one command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they bowed up against it and said, no, I know what's best. You don't know what's best. I know what's best. It's the posture of sin throughout the Old Testament. You won't lead me. You, I'll lead me. I, you won't order my life. I'll order my life. You won't tell me what's good. I'll say what's good. And it's what the people do here. And it's honestly, it's what you and I do every day of our lives, right? And it's sin. It's to say my way is right, to approach God uh, with a hard, closed fist, with a hard heart, and to say, I won't be led. I won't learn from you how to live. I won't learn from you what's right. I'll order my own life. And so what happens to Stephen is the same thing uh, that has happened in the long story of God's pursuit of his people. It's that they take the messenger, they take the one who's come as an emissary of God's grace and his love, and they stone him, right? Jesus told us to expect this at the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you when they persecute you as they did the prophets who came before you, right? That this is what the encounter between grace and a sinful world looks like. Just as, as sin led Jesus' contemporaries to drive him to the cross, so it, it continues to resist this movement of God's love and his grace and his mercy. And so the question for us in this, this moment is, or do you approach God as a stiff-necked, hard-hearted person or are you willing to approach God with open ears and a soft heart? Right? Are you willing to approach God and look to him, not judging God by our standards, not judging God by whether he fits into our ideas or our will or our plan, but to approach God with a soft heart and to say, God, show me who you are. Show me what you want for my life. Show me how you would order my life and our days. Fundamentally, it's about a posture of heart of faith or of unbelief, right? As Stephen finds out here, it's not about who's a good person. It's, it's not about who's an insider, who's a religious person, and who's an irreligious person or an outsider, right? This is within the people of Israel. These are the people who ought to know better, right? That the line, as is, is Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil doesn't run uh, between nations, but between individual human hearts, right? That the insider and the outsider, the religious person, the irreligious person, both just as possibly can be approaching God from a hard-hearted, stiff-necked posture. There's people who sit in the pews or chairs of churches every day for their whole lives, not every day for their whole lives, uh, once a week for their whole lives maybe, with a stiff neck, with a hard heart. And the posture of faith is to go to God and say, God, I want to know you. I want to know you as you are. I want to be led by you. I want you to make sense of my life for me and to give me forgiveness and mercy and life. And then Stephen's story ends. He's had this insight into what real death is and his life ends with this vision, this remarkable vision of what real life looks like. So Stephen ends his sermon with you stiff-necked people, you killed Jesus. That's basically his conclusion. Uh, it's interesting to me how oftentimes in Acts, the preachers really, they pull no punches. 
right? Stephen ended that sermon like somebody who was about to get stoned. He made no effort to soften the message. He just said, look, this is what, this is what it is. This is what God has done in Jesus. Either move towards it in faith or you're going to move against it in unbelief. And that's what they do. Now, when they heard these things, verse 54, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out loud with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. More on him later. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's amazing what Luke is doing here. If if you notice, there's some really, really clear parallels that Luke draws between Stephen's death and the death of Jesus. Right? That he's led outside the city to die outside the city. Is Jesus cried out to the Father, uh, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus, uh, Stephen cries out to Jesus, Lord, receive my spirit. Is Jesus prayed for those who are crucifying him? Stephen says, Father, don't hold this sin against them. This is a, a picture of how when we follow Jesus, when we take up our cross and follow Jesus, our lives begin to look like Jesus's. We follow him in the way of not clinging to life, clinging to power, but letting it go even to the point of dying a death like Jesus's. Where do we find that kind of power? It takes keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Right? It, Luke tells the story in such a way that Stephen is on trial before this court. And at the very same moment that the court on earth is convicting him, the court in heaven is receiving him. Right at the very moment that they stop their ears and yell at him and and charge after him to stone him, he sees Jesus, his intercessor and high priest, standing at the right hand of God to receive him into uh, into heaven. Right, and for Stephen, the verdict in heaven mattered more to him than the verdict on earth. Right, the, the acceptance of heaven mattered more to him than the judgment of earth. Being uh, accepted and delighted in by Jesus mattered more to him than being judged and condemned by these people on earth. And friends, if you want to have a life, if you want to have a purpose that overwhelms any resistance, that overwhelms the pain and suffering of this life, you have to have a vision of Jesus. One who receives us by his grace and by his mercy. The one who Stephen had just gotten done preaching as our great high priest who brings us to God. He now sees standing to welcome him into heaven. You know, everywhere else that the scriptures talk about Jesus at the right hand of God, it talks about Jesus seated. That Jesus, having done his work, ascended to his throne and sat. But when Jesus receives Stephen, he stands. He stands perhaps to honor Stephen's life. But I think to receive him, to to bring him into his very presence. Stephen, in the midst of the onrushing crowd, the shouts and the stones, tunes his ear to hear Jesus' voice 
opens his eyes to see Jesus' face. If you ever, as a, as a parent, sometimes you'll send your kids out to play with a big group, and you'll often see them looking back, especially when they're little, uh, looking back to see your face, right? To wonder, is it okay? Right? Am I safe here? Is it okay here? Is what I'm doing okay? Dad, are you still there? In a life that can live a life of meaning and purpose and boldness, keeps our eyes fixed on Jesus' face, to know that we're cared for, that we're safe, that we're protected, that no matter what this world brings to us or throws at us, that we'll be received by Jesus. I'll end with this. Uh, John Newton, the great hymn writer, actually wrote uh, an entire poem uh, called The Death of Stephen. And I will, I will do it. I'm not a great poetry reader. I'll do this and we'll end. As some tall rock amidst the waves, the fury of the tempest braves, while the fierce billows toiling high break at his foot and murmuring die. Thus they who in the Lord confide, though foes assault on every side, cannot he moved or overthrown, for Jesus makes their cause his own. So faithful Stephen, undismayed, the malice of the Jews surveyed, the holy joy which filled his breast, a luster on his face impressed. Behold, he said, the world of light is open to my strengthened sight. The glorious Lord appears in view, that Jesus whom ye lately slew. With such a friend and witness near, no form of death could make him fear. Calm amidst showers of stones he kneels, and only for his murderers feels. May we by faith perceive thee thus, dear Savior ever near to us. This fight our peace through life shall keep, and death be feared no more than sleep. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long uh, to live our lives with the purpose and faith and courage of a man like Stephen who though an ordinary guy, not an apostle, or, uh, but, but, a, but a deacon who recently had come into ministry, was asked to lay down his life for the world, for the glory of God. Lord, we pray that we too would have a vision of Jesus, a vision of the glory of his face that fills the darkness of our lives with love and meaning and purpose. Lord Jesus, help us to order our lives around uh, you, your person, your glory, your presence, and your grace. Lord Jesus, help us uh, to not be a stiff-necked people who are difficult to lead. But Lord, help us as your disciples to look to you, to look to your face, to lead us and to guide us by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.